the big, big picture is we can come together as human beings, despite what our race is, not even despite, but because, you know, we yeah. can come together and really embrace our humanity yeah. without all these structures that tear us down and tear us apart. But the process to that is not comfortable. The process to that is painful. The process to that is full of a lot of excavating, digging, challenging, and we have to pursue the unity over what feels comfortable. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Monique Melton is an anti-racism educator, published author, international speaker, coach, and host of the Shine Brighter Together podcast. She is also the founder of Shine Brighter Together, a community dedicated to healthy relationships and diverse unity. Monique travels the world speaking at conferences and events on topics related to anti-racism, personal growth, diversity, and relationships. She's been published in magazines, featured in blogs and podcasts, and has touched the lives of people all over the world. Monique is a natural, big, bold dreamer and a deeply rooted woman of faith. She's a proud Navy wife to her high school sweetheart and a loving mother to two little ones. She has a BA in social science with an emphasis in sociology and psychology and two years of graduate school education in clinical counseling from Johns Hopkins University. She believes it's not all about your comfort, but it's about your growth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I am here with my friend, Monique Melton, this beautiful ray of sunshine who is doing the hard work of anti-racism education. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, Monique. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am so excited. Like, <laughs> this has been the highlight of my, like, day, my week, just getting here. Thank you so much for having me, Layla. You know I love you so much. I love you, too. And one of the highlights of my year was getting to meet you in person. It feels like it was so long ago, but it was actually just February time, right? Yeah. yeah. February, was yeah. it? It's February, and we're recording this right now in April. So it wasn't that long ago, but with the global pandemic, time seems to have completely changed and one of the things that you gifted me was this beautiful poster, right? That had the words good ancestor written in calligraphy. And it's actually here, right? In Yay! Front of me. So I'm pointing to those listening from the audio. There is a poster right in front of me that says good ancestor. And then around it are four posters of four of the literary good ancestors who influenced me. Wow. Tony Morrison. Audrey Lord, of course, Maya Angelou, and of course Octavia Butler. <laughs> all, all of the classics. 
looking down on me. Yes, yes. So I get to remember you every day because I come into my office and oh my goodness, there. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. And you know what? We actually met at Catrice Conference. Yeah, Black Women. That of was course. That was the first time. That right? was the first time. Yeah, that was the first time. I yes. had to think about it. Yes. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I love. I had that drawn for you over a year ago, actually. It was like, I was going to mail it and then I I forgot to bring it to the conference. And then I'm like, okay, I'm bringing it to the book signing because I I, I don't know when I'll see her again. So yeah, yeah, I was really excited to have that. Well, I love this full circle moment then for us to have this conversation now. So with that being said, let's start with our opening question. Who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? I love that question, first of all. I love it so much. I love hearing what your other guests have to say. Yeah. And so for me, there are a couple when I was thinking about this question. One very first person who I can think of is my dad. My dad is still living, thank God. Although I am very concerned with this COVID and he's still working. Um, And so I'm concerned about that. But my dad, oh my goodness, I have always been a daddy's girl. My dad, every single moment that has been significant in my childhood and young adult life, my dad has been a part of it. Mm. And he taught me how to flip a pancake. He taught me how to ride a bike. He taught me how to change the oil in a car. And I have always felt this unwavering, unconditional love from my dad. Like Mm. I know for a fact that there is absolutely nothing that I could ever do, ever say, that would make my dad retract or withdraw his love for me. And I felt that even as a young girl, and it's funny because when I got married, I married my high school sweetheart. And one of my my things my dad would say about boys coming to the house and all that was his goal was to try to get them to run away. And so if he could get them to run away, they weren't any good for you. Mm-hmm. And my husband clearly didn't run away. He kept coming around and my dad would tease and be like, oh, he just keep coming around. But when we got married, I would sometimes have dreams of something really scary happening. It was my dad initially who would always be the one to come and protect me. And, and my husband would get so frustrated. Like, why not me? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm supposed to be that for you. And I'm like, Chris, my entire life, my dad has been this for me. Yes, you're my husband. Yes, you can yeah. do that. but it's so deeply ingrained in me and we have a very special bond. I can tell my dad anything. And so I just love him dearly. And I believe why he is an ancestor who has really impacted who I am is that knowing that you can be who you are, like I don't need to change. I don't need to edit myself. I don't need to alter who I am. Like knowing that you can just be authentic to who you are in a relationship with someone Mm -hmm. and to know that they'll be there for you no matter what. My dad has been there for me no matter what. It's a great thing to experience, but it's also something that I wish to also model for my own children. Uh, Well, I was about to say, you know, you've had that poured into you. It seems only natural that it would pour out of you to your children as well. And my kids know it. They know I got their back. They know that I will always be there for them. And they know, they know that. And I want them to know that. I want them to feel really confident in that. So my dad is one. And I also love the story of Esther in the Bible. 
Okay. I'm not familiar with that story. So tell me. Okay. So Esther basically was just a regular, ordinary person. And she basically risked her own life to save her people. And there's a particular scripture, Esther 414, that she's being told that she's called for such a time as this. Mm. And I know that. I know uh, that that line. Yes. Esther 414. Yes. Mm. And that has stuck with me so much because she literally saved her people. She went to the king's into the king's court where you could, you know, be if you weren't summoned, you could be murdered. She went there to petition for her people and she got her sisters together to pray for her and to fast, fast and pray so that she could petition to save her people. And she did. And so I think a lot about her when I first started doing this work, Mm. because almost probably 13, 14 years ago, I was at church and I was prophesied over by a guest minister who didn't know me. I was at the altar and the prophecy was that I would bridge the gap between black and white. And that my husband would operate as a support role. And at the time, like, I just, honestly, we went and had brunch. Like, it wasn't something that really (laughs) shook me, you know? Like, I didn't feel like, whoa. But as I began to really step into this work, I recalled that. And then I began to think about Esther and how she was called for such a time as this. Hmm. It's really what helps ground me in my work. And to stay focused. So Esther, for sure, my dad. And then I also think about Malcolm X. He's one of my favorites, actually. And you know how he's vilified and looked at as this just, you know, violent, out for blood, radical activist of sorts and, you know, enemy of the state. And he's often pitted against Malcolm or pitted against Martin Luther King. Right. And I think a lot about him, especially how he didn't start out on his like journey. He wasn't like a little young Malcolm pro black. Right, like right. he was very much the opposite in terms of just assimilating the white culture and, you know, straightening his hair and dating white women, which that was considered like, you don't do that. What are you doing? If you're a pro black, why would you do that? And I think about his transition and his awakening and then also how his own people that he, he had his experiences awakening with, were actually some of the ones who were to his demise, like in my own journey, a little bit to his. And, mm. and, and he was murdered and he was taken from us far too soon. Mm. But even like in his last state, in his last, you know, living, it was such grief and heaviness and pain and suffering. Mm. But I think like, wow, even through the midst of that, he still continued to be unwavering and speaking his truth. Mm. And standing for what he believed, even in the midst of all of the loss and all of the fears being materialized in many ways. And so I'm encouraged. I mean, I'm definitely encouraged and I'm saddened too, because so many of our great leaders have experienced so much pain and suffering for our own benefit and for their own benefit as well. Mm. I definitely think about him. And then there's another who's a part of my life now. Her name is Lolita. And I met her when I was, my husband was in the military. She is a lactation consultant or former OB nurse. And she came in our life because when I had my son, my husband was in the military. And so she was a part of like the support system that you could rely on to help you get familiar with being a new mom and all that. Mm. And when I had my son, 
I call her literally an angel because when I had my son, I had a very traumatic birth experience with him. We almost lost him. And the entire time while I'm in the hospital, I was trying to get him to nurse. And this is my first, so breastfeeding for the first time, your first time and the baby first time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard. whole mess. It's, it's such a, a mess. whole thing. And your, your hormones are out of whack. I had an emergency C-section after yeah. doing 29 hours of labor. Like it was a really traumatic experience, but he wouldn't nurse. He just wouldn't latch on. All the specialists and one nurse told me it was a white woman. I'll never forget. She's like, I've never seen a baby like this. And I just sobbed even more. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So out of all these people who helped, tried to help me, we could not get my baby to nurse. She came to my house, Lolita came to my house and I'm not even kidding. The very first time, mind you, there had been at least 10 different people who tried to help me. The very first time my baby nursed, she helped me. She grabbed my boob and she put the boob in the baby's mouth. And I never had a problem after that. Never, never had a problem with that. And she's still a part of my life. Like we just talked a few days ago. She has shown up for me in so many moments where I felt alone. I felt dark. I felt scared. I had really bad postpartum depression and anxiety. And she was, she's always just been this warm, nurturing, sincere, loving, compassionate person. And she didn't know me prior to this. Like this was just a f- interaction, first time coming in. And I'm so inspired by her because she was unwavering in her love and compassion. Mm. And she, felt very called to the work that she was doing for me and serving women like me. And she was unrelenting. You know, she yeah. would just really show up and that inspires me. And it makes me almost feel emotional. Like that inspires me to be the same for other people, show up for people who are hurting, who are afraid, who need someone to just let them know that I'm here. I'm listening. I see you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what she has always been for me and my family. And I'm just so inspired to be that for myself, to be that for my children, to be that for people who maybe I just am meeting or just getting to know and just really letting folks know that your heart matters, what you're going through matters, your hurt, your pain is real. And I'm going to sit here with you and I'm going to be here. And that's what she's always been. And she's, she's just wonderful. It's so beautiful. I love each of the stories that you've just shared of those really influential ancestors, and especially with Esther, Malcolm X, and Lolita, you know, this theme keeps coming up around calling, that they've been called to do this work, that this is the work that has called them. And so what I'm really curious about is what calls you. And where I will preface all of this conversation is, is to kind of give people an understanding of how you and I know each other. You and I were introduced to each other through a mutual friend called Courtney. And I remember she said to me, you should really meet my friend Monique. You would really like her. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And I fell in love with you. You're amazing. But at that time, neither of us were doing anti-racism work that I recall, right? I was a, a life coach. I think you were a life coach. Brand. I was doing marketing and life coaching. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Nothing at all about race, anti-racism. The words white supremacy had never been written by me. And it's really interesting because we've both been on this journey of this evolution of where our work started and how it's now evolved to. So I would love to know two things, I guess. One of them is what called you into this work? 
for me, it was the Charlottesville, you know, rally. That was the cooking over moment for me where it was like, I have to speak. So that's the first question. And then the second one is something that I've noticed is that even though your work has massively changed in terms of what you do, who you serve and how you serve, the brand of it, how it looks, the essence and the energy of it is the same. And that always fascinated me, right? Because this work is so heavy. Yes. (laughs) And so intense. And you are this ray of sunshine, literally, but having very direct Malcolm X type conversations with people, right? While in sequence. Right. (laughs) What called you into this work? And how have you navigated staying in that same energy throughout going from that sense of, for me, it was innocence. I was really innocent before I entered this work. Mm-hmm. And that innocence meaning, oh, I thought we were all the same here. I yeah. thought, you know, <laughs> into the grief, the sadness, the anger, the yes. everything, and then that journey through that to where I am now in it. I love these questions. This is why I was so excited. Like, this, <laughs> this makes my heart race. So prior to being a brand strategist slash coach, because what was happening as I was doing brand strategy is I was really getting to know people and pulling out their personal um, connection to their brand. And then all the layering was coming in with that in relationship. So I started doing both. But prior to this in college, my major in college was sociology, social science, psychology. And then when I went to grad school, I majored or studied clinical counseling. And I remember in college, I wrote a paper on white privilege. And I wish that I could find that paper to see what I had to say, what my perspective was. I remember in college, there was this campus-wide forum where this white girl wanted to know why do we have historically Black sororities and fraternities and how that was racist. And she, and we ended up having this camps wide forum. And so conversations about race were happening Mm -hmm. for me, but it was never a direct service that I offered. I would intermingle it when I was working with clients on their brand and making sure that they were being more inclusive. I would mention and say, and all of that, but it wasn't until, and let me go back a little bit. When I was in high school and middle school, prior to those years, my surroundings were very Black. Like my neighborhood was very Black. My school was very Black. My family, Black. (laughs) Everything was Black. Even the cat was Black. (laughs) We had a Black cat named Mittens. Not with you, right? It was. It was black. And I remember as a kid, my parents would have conversations and they would say things like, you know, you can't trust white people, this and this and that. And I would always be advocating for white people. I'd be like, Mm-mm, not all of them. Not all, not <laughs> not all white, white people. people. <laughs> not all white people are this and that. And I was so naive. And so it wasn't until I went to middle school and it was primarily white. From middle school on up, middle school, mm. high school, college, post-college. I went to John Hopkins. Like all of that stuff was very white. And it wasn't until I went to high school or to middle school where there was this rude awakening of, whoa, this is what it's like to actually be aware of my blackness. And that is something that makes people uncomfortable because I was never uncomfortable with my blackness, but I wasn't, I never knew what it felt like 
to be around people. I wasn't aware, at least, to be around people who were uncomfortable with my Blackness. And so I would be teased every single day on the bus for being Black. And I had to experience the racism every single day on the bus. And I had several racist encounters in school, in high school. I remember some of my white peers, I would hang out with them sometimes and they would tell me, oh, you're not like the rest of them. And one time they told me I was their slave and I was like, what the hell? This is not, no, we stopped being friends after that. Yeah. But believe it or not, I was still very naive about whiteness and that there are some white folks out here who just are the exception. I had that belief because for the most part, even though I had those painful experiences, for the most part, most of the white people in my life were nice to me. And so I equated niceness with being safe in my Blackness. Like I could be fully who I was, not realizing that I actually was showing up and I had to compartmentalize myself. People wanted to accept and see parts of me, but not all of me, certainly not the part of me that was Black. And so most of my closest friends were white. And I say were because I'll get to that. Like I lost. Oh, girl. (laughs) You know, (laughs) most of them were white, Layla. They was just, Oh, white. Uh And it wasn't until I became a mom and my son was about three. Mm. So I had my daughter at this point. And it was the couple years of where we were hearing back to back to back of these shootings of unarmed men. And they were very publicized shootings of unarmed black men and women that I looked at my son. And for the Mm. first time, the target on his back became so undeniable. He wasn't just a cute little toddler. He was, wow, this could be my son. Now, mind you, I've been Black all my life. I've had Black men in my life. My husband is Black. My dad is Black. But it was something about becoming a mother and seeing that I could carry that grief that I saw on the screen of these Black women. I could carry that. And it really does come in. We carry it anyway, like, right? Like, It's a part of that generational and that trauma, but to know it, to touch it, to feel it, to taste it, like that, that could be me. Whoa, that woke me up. I remember just weeping, crying. And so then I started to look in my life like, oh, wait, are these white people? Are they safe? Like, are they going to be advocating for my son? Would they march with me? Would they... And when I started talking about race and questioning, and I was became painfully aware of just how much I was not safe. Right. And that process unfolded over a, a couple year time span, but it really materialized actually just in 2019, as I really decided that this was going to be the only work that I focused on because I started doing anti-racism and still was coaching, like doing it and still, and that wasn't my focus all while still feeling very called to it. And I would, I would argue with God, like, no, I'm not doing this. This is too scary. I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my friends. And also on a business side, like I'm gonna make money doing this. You know, like I was making money just fine doing coaching. Like I knew that white people would pay me X amount of money to help them make their business. That that for them was ROI that they were willing to make an investment in. But 
for white folks to invest and pay to learn about how to not be racist? I was mm-hmm. like, <laughs> they're not going to do that. And so I also was looking at it from a practical matter. Right. Because but- it's not, it's not just about the, the kind of tug in your heart, right? It's if I commit myself to this, like, you know, I posted today that anti-racism is, is this lifelong practice, right? Mm-hmm. Being in anti-racism education work is not a thing that you just do as a thing for a while and then decide you're not going to do it anymore. Like it's a calling thing. It is. Right. And so I definitely had that experience of, well, I don't really want to do it or I'll try. And I sort of would go and then I would come back yep. and because yep. it's heavy and it's hard. It's very heavy. And you, yeah. There's so many considerations and the cost that is paid and how do I show up in my full humanity while doing this work? And when I, when I'm with my family, how am I with them after so many things that you have to learn how to to navigate? Yeah. So I feel you. So many things because we carry, like when I think about doing business coaching, if someone didn't want to work with me, that was their loss. Like, it was right. like, you know what? It wasn't about me. I didn't feel a personal attack. I didn't feel, it just didn't, I didn't carry it like that. But when someone says no to anti-racism, a white person, no to an invitation to read an article. I'm not even talking about no to a class where you got to spend right. money. I'm talking about, you won't even read the article. You won't even listen to the podcast. You won't even talk to me. You won't even mm. have a conversation with me. And this is about people this. that you know. You're not talking about No, I'm not even talking either. about the strangers out right. there. Like, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I'm talking about people who were in my life. I'm talking about people as close to me as in the room when I gave birth to right. my children that wouldn't really go deep and wanted me to then just kind of like go back to who I was. Like, right. this is, we didn't sign up for this. We've been friends all this time and you never really brought it up. Like, why now? And so... When it was a no to that, it felt like a no to my humanity. And I refuse mm. to negotiate my new humanity with anyone. I won't exchange or compromise that. I didn't realize I was making those compromises before. Right. I didn't realize I was making those concessions. I didn't realize that I was just assimilating and trying to be, when I think, because I've reflected on this so much, I think that I was trying to somehow convince myself that I could be good enough for white folks to love and to accept. Like I, I could be the one that they felt comfortable with and that they could really want, like, and it felt almost like I had achieved something. Like there was this like sense of pride that I had all these white friends. Internalized (laughs) oppression is such a trip because you don't, until you had a mirror held up to you to see that you are actually self-betraying, you are actually compromising your humanity last week in my mentoring session with my mentor, Dr. Frantonia, I do a lot of work on it, on my internalized depression. And one of the things that I realized was I'm, I am an agent of white supremacy to myself. Mm. When I doubt myself, right. When I doubt myself, when I hold myself back, when I tell myself I can't have X, Y, Z, all of those things, that's me doing the job that I'm asking white people not to do. I'm doing it to myself where nobody even knows. It's so heartbreaking. It is. Having these realizations, but at the same time, it's so freeing. (laughs) Let me tell you, this past year has definitely been a very much... So you asked me what called me. So there was this awakening with my son. But then also, I got to take it back a little bit. 
when I gave birth to my son, so I've always been a very spiritual, connected Mm. to God, even as a kid, as a young child. I see it in my son a lot too. But I remember very vividly when I was battling postpartum depression and God spoke to me to write about it. And I was like, no, we're not writing about that. No, 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 no. Mm. And so there was this book in me. Now, I already wrote a book, but this that was a different book. But there was this book in me that for the past 10 years, I was running from, from writing because every time I would try to start writing that book, it would tear me to shreds. Mm. And so when I finally decided in 2018 that I would sit down and write this book and not stop because I would start and then end up in therapy, start the book, end up in therapy, start the book, fall apart. like. It just did so much because in the book, God gave me this very divine download of this journey, this process of unraveling Mm. and really uncovering your true authentic self. And that process is painful. It's excruciating. It's just excavating. And so I wrote the book, finished the book, and I said, I'm not publishing this book. I'm not ready to put this book out because in the process of writing the book, I did the work that I was calling people to do in the book. I said, I won't put one thing in this book that I won't be willing to do myself. And so when I did that, there was another level of awakening within me and transformation Mm -hmm. as I was unraveling these threads and unraveling this process, this bondage that I was really being held back and who I was and who I allowed myself to be and who I believed myself to be and the thoughts and all of those things. And so that process was really happening for me really a lot last year. And that has just fueled me even more to do the work because I feel more liberated in who yeah. I am. And a lot of who I was and what I thought were real things that were really important to me and how I defined myself are no longer. And it's very, very disorienting. Yeah. You know, friends and religion. And I even started cussing. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start cussing. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> I had tried it before and I didn't like it. And then I came back to it and I was like, I like this. You know, but there was a lot of religion tied around right, that. Right. <laughs> You know, and patriarchy, and that's not a lady to, you know, talk like right. that. Like, um, no, my kids don't like it because they're not used to it. They're like, right. Mommy, don't say adult words. <laughs> so it was my son, and then it was writing this book. And is this book available? Can we get it? It will be. Okay. It's a very powerful experience for sure. Mm. And it will be. I I'll, think be, for, I'll be the first to share it. I'm going to tell you. Know. I'm going to tell you because I think for me, I had to do it first. Yeah. And I think that was an important part of the work for God and to really bring me through that. I think this is so key as well because I, I feel the same way about being the author of Mean White Supremacy. So I'm asking people to do very intense work. It is very important for me to be in integrity, to be having someone hold me accountable to doing my own work. I think that's really, really important. I think that in order for me to just be in integrity with myself, when I say, hey, you go out there and pull yourself, like uh, turn yourself inside out, peel back yeah. these layers, unravel your entire identity, and I'm just going to sit here and not do anything. Right. That would be completely out of integrity for me. But also what I know is that well, two things. I know that it gives me a greater sense of empathy and understanding for what the process yes, is actually is like. 
it gives me a huge sense of empathy and understanding for what this process is like. And also that the thing that I would hate to happen is I put this work out into the world and help so many people who have white privilege liberate themselves from the conditioning of white supremacy. And I never liberated myself from it. It would be the biggest heartbreak. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this work does. Like when you really get into this work and I, and that's why I've I appreciate and admire you for so many reasons. And that's one of the things, because I've watched your evolution. I've watched your your journey. That's one of the things about doing this work is I, I question myself. I ask myself. I dig. And in doing that, you uncover things that don't feel good. It's, no. it's like, whoa. Yeah. And you want to get defensive and run. And in the yeah. book, I talk about like the running and how you want to run. And you dig and you run. You dig and you run. Mm. But you get tired of running. And you just learn to just sit. What's heartbreaking for me too, and I'll get to your other question. What's heartbreaking for me too, though, is seeing so many other Black women in particular being where I was yeah, and not being interested or willing to get curious about being in that space. I don't recall a Black woman coming to me and trying to help me liberate myself. I can't really recall. There there may have been instances other than my parents telling me you can't trust white people. Yeah. I can't recall that. But when I have tried to have this conversation with people, it's with other black women, they've not gone well. I'm curious how you think would have been had if you were in that situation. So if you were you in, know, back in I, that space, yeah. I would probably have the same response there. Right. Having. Right. You know, you can't see what you can't see. Like you can't no. see it. You don't see you it. You can't see it until you see it. And then you until you see it. And then you're like, it. yeah, there ain't no going yeah. back. Like, no, it's like, whoa. No. It's, it's that matrix moment, right? Of taking the red pill. I mean, you can't. I sometimes wish <laughs> that I could just not I, I see it as much. Had, I had moments of that in the beginning yeah. as well. I was like, oh, this is like, it was so much easier before. Because it's everywhere. You're like, yeah. it's kind of like there's a certain time of day where my house, the sun comes in and I can mm. see the dust that yeah. I can't normally see. Right. And I can see all, and I'm like, let's just get dark again. Like, I'll get to that baseboard later, right. you know, but it's still there. It's Whether still I want to see it or not, it's still there. Right. But how did I maintain the energy and the essence of, you know, who I am? Because yeah, because also, it's not just, I want to be clear, it's not just about brand colors and fonts and things like that. That's not what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is, I know for myself, this journey took me from somebody who was very optimistic, hopeful, very positive, to having the awakening, being basically consumed by anger and grief. And that coming, that was the energy that you got from me. Layla was gone. Like I yeah. see pictures of myself, you know, in those early months of doing this work, the Layla that I know was not there. And, you know, now with the support and just the length of the journey and the learnings and the lessons, you know, I found a, a place back to myself, not the self that I was, because I don't actually right. want to go back to her. Mm-mm. I love her, but I don't want to go back to her, but a place of such peace, grace, joy even within myself that I couldn't have imagined before. It's not that I haven't seen you go through that. I've just seen you navigate it differently. Yeah. And that's exactly really what it has been, honestly. There's a lot of crying 
behind yeah. the scenes. Because I know we've oh, chatted and we've had, yes, yes we've had. There's a lot of yeah. despair behind the scenes. There's a lot of anguish, agony, especially this past year. It was really tough. But I would say having wrote that book and really having a framework that felt so divine to help ground me through it, the process has helped me remain centered. Yeah. But I've gotten offline. But I I But you come back. This is what I've seen about you, Monique, is that when I met you at the Follow Black Women conference for the first time, I'm like, oh, she's even even more of what I thought she would be. She's just like I had on sequence too. She did. She was twerking. She was (laughs) I forgot about the twerk. I would twerk at any moment. And it's, for me, it's, it's very inspiring because I was able to see somebody who is, like I said, having these, doing this deep work. And I want to talk about some of the work that you do and how you do it. But one of your products is called the Shine Box. Like that sounds like something I want to do. Like I don't even know what it is, right? I don't expect the, the tagline to be anti-racism work, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like this juxtaposition, right? Like it, yes. they yes. they're... And I feel like that's always who I've been. So I call myself a unicorn a lot of times because you know how sometimes people can be either really analytical, really strategic, can break things down detail by detail. And then you can have people who are very visionary. They can come up with the idea, but they're not the ones to come up with how I can do it. Right. I'm both. Mm. both. I can dream big, break it all down, wrap it all up, put it in a document and get it done. And it's just really how I'm wired. It's how I've been. It's, and it's not something that I always realized was a skill until I actually started working with clients and helping them through that process. But for me, one of the things that I really wanted to do in this work is I wanted to prove to myself that I would not allow whiteness to dictate how I live and navigate. And so if I want to feel good, I want to feel happy. I want to do my thing. I want to wear sequins and twerking. You about to get all of that. And you about to get this anti-racism lesson. Yes. Like you, you about to get both. Like I don't have to be one. That's right. You know, I don't have to be. Yeah. And if I'm angry, I'm angry. But I yeah. won't. I refuse. I yeah. refuse to allow my emotions to control me and to dictate my choices. And that's coming from my training in clinical counseling and how, you know, we do get to influence how we allow our emotions to navigate and to show up in our, in our lives and materialize. Mm. Yes, I'm a big person that believes in feeling mm. what you feel mm. without judgment. Mm. And so that was also helpful in going through this process when there was deep grief and sadness. I let myself weep. Yeah. I let myself grieve. I remember telling my husband, I'm like, something would happen. I'm like, I'm grieving. And I don't want you to try to fix me. I just need to feel. I need to feel it. There are times where I would have to cancel meetings because I just needed to get myself together. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. One thing I refused also to do is I refused to allow this work to dehumanize me. Like the yes. whole part is 
Like, I can't let this work engulf me and right. to the point where I'm no good for me or my family. Right. I'm doing it for me and for them, too. So it's like... Right. And, and when, we, when I talk about being an agent of white supremacy, that's one of the ways that we can do that, right? Is, you know, in those early months I of doing this work, I realized I had to really sacrifice myself so that people with white privilege could learn. I had to actually dehumanize myself in the hopes that people would learn. And a decision that I had to make was not to do that anymore. And then a practice that I had to cultivate within myself was not to do that anymore. Because Mm -hmm. in reality, that's what white supremacy conditions us into. Absolutely. Self-sacrifice and self-dehumanization. Absolutely. We, again, in my mentoring, had to see that I bought into the lie that I was inferior. And I may not have consciously realized that, but my actions tell me that that's true. Exactly. Right? And so the kind of unlearning that we talk about, you know, that we offer to other people space for that unlearning, we're doing it within ourselves too. Absolutely. And I think, well, I know for myself, being able to reclaim that joy, that peace, that centeredness came from the choice that I would do this hard work, but I would do it my way. Yes. And that my way of doing it would be about me honoring my full humanity. Absolutely. So when you talked about the juxtaposition, right, of the shine box, but it's anti-racism work, like <laughs> that's not something that's weird or, or wrong. It's actually you honoring the fullness of your humanity, that you are this multi-layered, amazing Black woman who is sparkly, fun, joyful, but also dead serious mm-hmm. about the liberation of Black people. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I will not waver on that. And for me, shine is very much a spiritual connection because I believe we all have a light within us. We Mm -hmm. all are created in the light and the image of God. And so it is the conditioning of white supremacy. It is the pain. It is the violence that dims that light within us. It is that that makes it where we can't even connect with who we are our humanity. And so for me, shine brighter together, the shine box, there's always these references to light because this work is about reconnecting with that light and allowing that light to shine within us. And then when we come together, Mm -hmm. just when you think about a house, if there's one light on, sure, you can see a little bit, but when all the lights are on, when all the lights are shining, you can see so much more and it's much brighter. But it's not this fluffy process of love and light. No, no, no. It's not that. It's we're going to dig deep. We're going to go deep and it's going to hurt. Mm. It's going to be hard. It's going to feel impossible. You're going to feel discouraged. It's going to feel all these things. But the alternative is that we continue to be in darkness and to suffer and to pain. And I am not willing to surrender to the alternative. I won't. My ancestors didn't. And I know I won't. I can't. That's not an option for me. It's well, not I take an option, right? You know, I'll take breaks. I'll do, but like you said, I'll do it my way. Yeah. And my way means also, I have to be good with me. Right. I'm with me everywhere I go. I don't leave me at the house when I go to the gym. I'm with me at the gym. I'm with me everywhere. And so I need to be good with me. And and that's one of the things that we, even my husband and I, in our marriage, we said, we ain't getting out of this. You're right. Alive. Like we're in, right. We're in this. <laughs> it's you till you know whoever pops we, off first. So, like, <laughs> but we're not about to be miserable though. Right, we're not right, about to right. just be 
just together. And so that you approach the relationship very differently. And I'm in a relationship with myself and I need to be mindful of how I treat myself, how I prioritize myself, how I talk to myself, how I feed and nourish myself. And I refuse to surrender myself, put myself on the altar. And I feel like a lot of Christianity yeah. And I'm speaking. And that's what I wanted to talk about next. Yes, let's yes. Uh, let's go into it because it's, it's a your, big thing. Your spiritual journey has been like this, right? Like lock and key with your journey as an anti-racism educator. We have had private conversations about you navigating some of the hypocrisy that you were seeing, I believe, right in the spaces that you were in. So I'm going to hand over to you, and you tell us about girl. That's how has whole... your yeah? How has your faith, your spirituality evolved over these last few years? Oh my goodness! I didn't realize, amongst many things with white supremacy, how much the westernized Christianity, Christian faith, is in bed with, rooted in, foundation of white supremacy. I didn't realize that so much. And when I read this book, which is a really great book, it's written by a Black Christian historian. It's called The Color of Compromise. And it documents like account after account after history, historical fact after another of all the times the church has sided with white supremacy. Mm. And so while that was happening, well, reading that book and doing my process and uncovering, most of the people I experienced the most backlash from were white Christian women. The same folks who would pray and want to fast with me, the same folks who I would do Bible studies with told me that it was wrong for me to talk about diversity. They would argue with me when I would talk about what it was like to be a Black mother being pregnant and one of the experiences that I had. And they would, they would argue and tell me, horrible things and ask me horrible things. And I'm like, wow, how is it that the same people who want to talk about love and God and, and all this are the same people who refuse to see the injustice that is happening right here in front of their eyes, right here in front of you with your friend, your own, our own relationships. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware of how much and how often, and this is my own experiences, Christian folks will weaponize the Bible, weaponize the faith to justify, to make Black folks concede, to be quiet, to stop talking about this. And there are so many Black folks. I remember listening to Awesome Janie's book and I felt like, oh my goodness. I could. I love her book. Awesome oh, I mean, Janie. she was taking it from yeah. my heart. I'm like, yes. girl. Yeah. And the process for me, what the result was that I don't identify as a Christian woman mm. anymore. And a lot and of people don't know that. Right. And so you're getting so here, breaking news. Full discussion, <laughs> breaking news. And, <laughs> and can I just say, this is so huge because this is not just something that, you know, you opted into and then you opted out. This was a core part of your identity. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like from a kid, yeah. I was going to go to seminary, you know, like I oh. was going to be a pastor, like not a pastor, but maybe a theologian. Mm. And I mean, I was in college leading Bible studies in campus ministry and, you know, Christianity. Even when I started this work, I often talked about my faith and God and Christianity and all of that. And for you, would you say that because the thing that I find really 
fascinating about faith. And, you know, I wrote that letter to spiritual white women, right? Calling out the hypocrisy of this is what you say you believe, but this is what you actually practice. And Mm -hmm. that your values are actually, like you said, they are actually grounded in white supremacy. They're intended to uphold white supremacy. Right. For you though, and I think, I mean, I know for me, it's the same thing and I'm guessing it's the same for you. My faith, my religion, my spirituality, it actually grounds why I do what I do. Right. Whereas for the kind of folks that you were in relationship with, they use that as a reason why you shouldn't do that. You are using exactly. it as a reason why you should do that. Right. 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 It's interesting because I haven't had these conversations with people to say, you know, I really don't identify as a Christian, but I still very much am the same at the core. Like I still very much am connected to God. I believe in God. What has replaced that or what has it transformed into? What is your relationship with God? It feels so free Mm. with any religion. This is not just Christianity. It's all still man-made rules. People will get upset and they'll say what they want to say, but it is still men trying to reckon with life, death, mm-hmm. pain, sorrow, trying to figure it out. If you mm-hmm. go back to any of it, we're all human trying to come up with some type of connection to a bigger thing. When you think about, you know, really look at different religions. And for me, it was like, I don't want to go by anybody's rules. Mm-hmm. I want to really have an unfiltered relationship with God. I want one that is not based on what someone or something says that I'm supposed to do in order to feel a connection with God, Mm. you know? And so for me, like we stopped going to church and I stopped going to church because I felt like I was suffocating in church. It wasn't just because of Christianity. It was because my white pastor would never call out white supremacy. And when he did have conversations a little bit about it, it turned into white exceptionalism. Right. And it just felt so gross being there. And then when I tried to have a conversation with my pastor, I was silenced and tone policed. So um, I remember one time I wrote a post on Facebook and my pastor messaged me and was like, is this the right tone, basically? There are people in my church who look me right in the face and say, oh, I'm here for you. I hear you, but I'm probably not doing it the way you think I should. And it's like, who are these people? So it felt like I was suffocating. Mind you, the church that we were going to, we've always been one to tithe our money and to somehow get involved in leadership. That's been a place. But when we left, no one, not a one person reached out. Even just to say, are you alive? I take that back. There was one person who asked me if I wanted to have a meeting with the pastor. I take that back. Correction. But that was it. And so... What's replaced that for me is just this real sense of freedom of if I want to pray, I pray. If I want to sing a song, I sing a song. If I want, and I I can imagine Christians listening to this who are devout Christians, because I can imagine myself back in the day being like, well, religion isn't about rules and, and that's not what it's about. It's about faith and it's about this, this, and that. But when you begin to practice religion within a community of organized church, there are rules. There are standards. There are expectations. That's how you govern a space, a community. You have boundaries. You have rules. You have customs. Whether you want to acknowledge that they exist or not, they do. And and they're also not free. It's not going to be free from the influence and impact of white supremacy. Absolutely not. Or capitalism. Right. Let's talk about right. Capitalism. right. Patriarchy. Right. Homophobia. 
all of that, all of that ableism is Mm -hmm. all there. And there's no perfect place, obviously. But for us, our family personally, what we decided is that we don't want to be a part of it. You know, I can't be a part of a place where I can't be fully black and that I have to make a compromise just so that I can participate mm-hmm. and that I can be accepted. There are true consequences by not following the rules within the church. Mm-hmm. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not. And I also refuse to be in a place where my friends who are LGBTQ can't freely show up as who they are, right. you know? And so some folks will say, well, what about the black church? Being the, You go to the black church. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that the black church hasn't been touched by capitalism, hasn't been touched by white supremacy or homophobia and all those other things. Right. And really I'm, what I'm hearing as well and what I'm resonating with is the bigger invitation and opportunity, which is for us to define ourselves for ourselves for us to choose as individuals and as, uh, as families what works for us. Exactly. What feels right and best for us. And that, you know, when I asked you what's replaced that, the first word that came out of your mouth was freedom. Yeah. Freedom. And that's yeah. what we all want, right? So however that shows up for you, right, and for us as individuals, I think it's we all have that right and that permission to seek it out. Absolutely. By whatever Absolutely. means necessary. I think that's the thing about this process. It's like, I get to choose. Yeah. I get to decide. For some people, going to church feels good. It feels yeah. ner- like, I mean, we cannot extract the Christian church from the civil rights movement. Right. We can't extract, like there, there's or, no- Or erase the origins of Christianity. You can't. Right? You can't. <laughs> so it's not like I'm throwing it all out. Right. I just want to filter out the things yeah. that are oppressive yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. And that don't they don't feel free and liberating for me. But mm-hmm. for folks who still identify with, want to be a, I respect that. I am not trying to convince or persuade otherwise. Religion is and faith is such a sacred part of who we see ourselves. Yeah. And it's not to be trampled on. It's not to be pushed into and all of that. A lot of folks don't, don't know this is where we are in our journey. That's still well, if they're listening, they know now. <laughs> they're about to know now. That's and I'm not ashamed of it. Part of the reason why I haven't is because I don't want to feel like I need to explain myself. Or defend. You know? Right. Or defend. Like this has been our process, it's been our journey. Yeah. And I'm still in it. This is what's also interesting. If anything, I'm doing more called and divine work than I was when I was a part of organized religion. I give mm-hmm. more money than when I was a part of organized religion. I serve on a bigger level. I surrender yeah. and I examine myself even more than right. I did because I don't feel bound by these rules or expectations. Right. And it's different. It's very different, but it feels very free and liberating. Um, I honor you on your journey and I'm so happy for you because like I said, you know, you and I did have conversations when you were in the thick of the grief of the understanding that these spaces that I have belonged in all my life, I've never been safe. And the heartbreak that I'm bringing these conversations to the front and it's like, they don't hear me, they don't see me. So who am I and how do I define yes. myself? Yes. That journey from being defined by other people to then losing that identity to then rising from the ashes and creating a new identity that you define for yourself is such a powerful, powerful journey. And anytime that I see any person doing it, especially a black woman, 
I'm just there like, yes, mm-hmm. because yeah. I know how hard it is, but also how freeing it is. And when we're talking about this idea of being a good ancestor, the ripple effects of that, that you are now setting in motion for your children and the way that they get to define themselves as black people, right? Outside of the confines of, well, mom didn't say we have to do it. Dad didn't say we have to do it like that. You know, I get to choose my relationship with God. If I choose to be in the church or not in the church or however that is, right? But like your dad, she will love me no matter what. And she has fully empowered me to make my own choice because that's what I saw in her growing up and that's how she raised me. Exactly. Yeah. And I won't ever make them feel like they have to follow my path, what I've done. You know, my kids now, especially like my daughter was asking me about like, what is it like to have babies? And I was telling her and how it's, you know, it's painful and all that. And she's just like, (laughs) if I decide to be a mom, yeah, she's like, if I decide to be a mommy, I'm only having one. That's uh-huh. if I decide. And I'm like, it's your choice. You can do yeah. it. You don't have to. You don't have. And I just want my children to know they have a choice. Mm. And I think about my time as a Christian. I wouldn't change that foundation because my faith brought me through some very dark spaces. Mm. My faith connected me to some wonderful people. In the church, there have been numerous times where there are folks who showed up for my family and times where I was able to serve and to show up for people. And so it's just like, it feels heartbreaking because there's so much there that is good and that is wonderful and that is right, but it's so distorted and manipulated and just stripped away of a lot of that because of white supremacy, because of capitalism because of patriarchy and all of that. And it just feels like, wow, what a loss, you know? Because at the root, when you really study Jesus, this is not who Jesus was. Jesus would be over here in the march with the Black Lives Matter sign. Right, 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 right. right. (laughs) He wouldn't be telling people that social justice isn't an issue for the church. Like that. It's it's divisive, you know, just focus on being united. So, okay. So this is where I want to go to next. (laughs) United and unity. Your signature program for anti-racism where you're leading people through these cohorts live. So it's not a distance learning thing where they're just going through a program. Although you do have those, I know you have eBooks and you have the shine box and other things, but your signature program is called unity over comfort. I want to know Why Unity Over Comfort? Where did that name come from for you? What your aims are with the program? And what are some of the things that you've been seeing? Because I just saw today on your Instagram stories, you were talking about having led, you know, you just finished another cohort and some of the things that you were seeing, the work that was being done. um, It seems like, yeah, some good work is happening in those spaces. Yeah, thank you. So unity over comfort, it's funny. I was actually being interviewed in a podcast when I was, and I just said it, the phrase, I was talking about something. And then I was like, hmm, I'm going to have to name. I'm gonna <laughs> the, have brand, to the brand strategist <laughs> popped out. It's like, <laughs> like, we're going to have to. Let's get the URL. <laughs> we're going to have to name this something else because originally I had named, the very first one was Bridge the Gap, but mm. it felt too similar to Be the Bridge, which is right. another anti-racism movement yes. by Latasha Morrison. Mm-hmm. Who, she's very much in the church. She's wonderful. 
she's done a lot of great things. So I was like, mm, that sounds too similar. And I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not yeah. fair to her. That's not fair to other people, period. So I was like, let's change it. And so unity over comfort, for me, it felt like the perfect explanation of really what this ultimately is about. Because for me, the end goal, overall end goal that I won't see in my lifetime. I'm okay with that. I've already mm-hmm. come to terms we with it. We made peace with it. We made, we peace, made with peace with it. it. But yeah. the big, big picture is we can come together as human beings, despite what our race is, not even despite, but because, you know, we yeah. can come together and really embrace our humanity yeah. without all these structures that tear us down and tear us apart. Yeah. But the process to that is not comfortable. The process to that is painful. The process to that is full of a lot of excavating, digging, challenging, and we have to pursue the unity over what feels comfortable. Because we ultimately need to be working towards coming together. Now, I know some people feel like that's fluffy. and But really, though, because people have asked me, I remember this one white girl asked me, do you want more white people to be killed by cops, but then black? And I'm like, are you serious? Like, why do y'all think that's why the alternative? Why does it have to be, right? Why is, like, black people and people of color being fully in their humanity have to equal the dehumanization of white people? I don't understand that. Because that's all they've ever been able to see right. for themselves. That the only way to maintain a position in society is at the expense of another. Right. And so you can't imagine otherwise. But for me, I can. And right. for many of us who do this work, we can. That is what we are working towards. And where we must, right? We have to. Yes. Like, I don't want, I'm not looking for black people to be on top and white people right. on the bottom. Right. I'm looking for us to have equity. I'm looking Mm -hmm. for equality. I'm Mm -hmm. looking for us to be on level playing fields for people to truly be treated with love, respect, and dignity. Mm -hmm. And we can come together in unity. Um, Doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. No. Like quite the opposite. Like we, our differences don't diminish when we come together. In Mm -hmm. fact, they're more recognized, they're respected, they're acknowledged. Right. So it's this world that I know I won't see in my lifetime. But it is one that I believe is possible. Have we seen it? No, <laughs> we, we've not seen it. We might see glimmers, little glimmers here and there of these moments. But for the most part, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of work to do. And that's what the program is about, where mm-hmm. I'm taking, I think this is just from my own years of in academia, I really position this similar to a college experience. Mm. So when you go to college, like a four-year college, you have your prerequisites that you take. So let's say you're studying to be a chef or not a chef. Let's say you're studying to be a doctor. And your very basic class is that you need to give you that foundation that you build upon. Yeah. And that's what the shine box is. The shine box is these tools that you are introduced of what they are, what is anti-racism, what it is, what it looks like, the history, the frameworks, and all that. And Mm -hmm. then the unity over comfort is where we take that and we build on that. We begin to go into more specific examples. So for example, in the Shine Box, I have an educator who is in LA who teaches a historical framework of how to look at history, present. And so then in in the unity over comfort, 
we actually talk about the history and we give, we go over the history of racism within America using that framework. Right. So it's like, you know the tool, but now we're applying the tool. Right. We talk about what the healing process looks like for this work because white people need to heal from the dehumanization of white supremacy too. I love that you said that because for me, it's not that they need that. I want them to heal for themselves, right? It's that they cannot dismantle white supremacy without their healing. Where the tambourine. You can't because, right, we talked about that seeing that world, right? That world that we know will not happen in our lifetimes, but we hold the vision of it. And the more that we come back to our humanity, so the journeys we've been talking about of coming back to our own, own humanity, learning to honor ourselves. You know, I wrote down today, I was writing about, I've been writing about my purpose, my mission, right? Really digging into it. And I wrote, my purpose is to be a self loving Black woman. Mm. lives in the fullness of her humanity and is a role model and an example to other black women and black girls of how they can love love themselves and live in the fullness of their humanity. That's my purpose, right? That is the everything, right? That is, that is pulling me. That is that I'm here to be. And in that healing, that's how I can hold the vision of a world where there is equity, where everyone, everyone, people of all races, live in the fullness of their humanity. You cannot, as someone who has that privilege, work to creating that world without you getting your healing. Not a way. And that's why I would always say you don't use privilege for good because that means that there's still a system that gives you that privilege. There means that there's still a structure in place that you benefit from at the expense of another. And so people are like, well, but people can use their money. I'm like, well, no, we, we want to reframe that. We can say you can use your resources, right. you can use your opportunities, but realize that when you say you use your privilege, there's a threshold that you're going to reach that yes. you won't go any further if you're right. still trying to uphold the very system That's that right. gave you that privilege. And so yes. you know, we got to break it down. <laughs> and we do, we break it down, Layla, in the classes. So I've done this four rounds. Every round is different. We, mm. The same curriculum. But it's different people, so obviously it's going to be different. Different energy, right? And and, different you're, energy. and you're different each time. I'm like, whoa! I want the first round to come back because right, I got something for them. Right? More to say, <laughs> and another thing. I said this last round. I started it with, "I am not here to be your friend. This is not about being friends. This is not building a yeah. friendship." Right. And it's interesting because two of the people who are were in the round were actually friends of mine before this process. Mm. And so there was this fierce boundary in place of when I'm in educator role, I'm in educator role. You're not the exception. You're never the exception, but certainly not now in this place because we're friends. And And, and if anything, I expect more from you because you are my friend. Exactly. Right. And... After, when I'm not in educator role, which they, they were very good in maintaining the boundary of not thinking that mm. we can slide in extra session or that never happened. But I know it was because of a fierce boundary that I set in the beginning. I set very clear ground rules in right. the beginning, but I have to uphold them. And one of the ground rules that I set is that I'll call you out at any time. And when we're talking, one of the common things that comes up 
multiple times is white exceptionalism. So when we're talking yeah. about white supremacy and I'm asking them to explain to me, you know, why, because there's a lot of interaction. Why is this, this? And they'll go into saying, well, because white people, this, yeah. they like, oh no, no. You yeah. mean we. We mean we. You mean me. You mean yes. I. Right. And we had a moment where the girl in the class, one of the girls in class was very visibly upset, upset crying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I refused to acknowledge it because I said in the beginning, this is not a place to process your feelings about this work. You can feel your feelings. And I actually give them a framework for how to process their feelings. But I said, there, this is not, you don't do it in the class. It's not where right. we do that. And so we ended up talking. I said, and another girl started trying to like explain. I said, no, we don't do that either. You're not getting ready to coddle her. So I have to, like, I'm teaching the things, but I'm also in live correcting the things that I'm teaching them how to not do. Like I'm pulling it out. And that part is, that part feels heavy. It does. And can I ask, and I know, like, I could literally talk to you forever. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to know, as somebody who has yet, but, you know, this is something that I'm definitely looking into entering is doing that live teaching. Yeah. for reasons of my own self-care and setting my boundaries and learning how to navigate this work, you know, there's certain, ba- writing a book is a boundary. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a boundary, right? <laughs> doing the classes and installing them, in that, that's a boundary, right? What yeah. you're doing is a lot of heavy lifting. It is. Um, and I, I do feel that as I'm continuing on this journey, because I've learned so many of these practices and they're coming more naturally to me now, this is something that I'll be looking to doing as we move forward. But what are your self-care practices? Yeah. How do you make sure, because in the process, yes, like you have the boundaries, you're very, very clear, but it is a lot of energy. It is. Yeah. How do it you is. take care of yourself pre, during, and post? Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that and acknowledged that because it is, it's a lot. And writing the book is no easy feat. You no. are amazing. You are amazing. I always Let's... say thank you. I always say I did my emotional labor up front. I didn't do it in the room. I do it up yes. front. Okay. And then afterwards when I'm talking about it, it's done. That's why I'm so joyful as I'm talking about my book. You are do... amazing. Yes. Seeing you in person at the book signing was like, wow, this is she's so silly. Like I love it. Like it's just so, all these things. It wasn't like but, that in the library when I'm sitting at my laptop writing my book. No. I know you was like, in another thing. You look, <laughs> you're about to get this lesson today. And so many people ask me, because people ask me things, they'll ask me, they'll tell me they're reading your book. I'm like, good, read it. Yes, I yeah. highly recommend it. I can't tell you how many times I've told people that. But my self-care practices going into it, one of the things, which is why with COVID-19 is so tough, is I love physical exercise. Like, I love lifting weights and just feeling strong and and not strong in the sense of like dehumanizing strong black woman because I don't, not that, but just physically doing something that's hard, that's tough. Yeah. But I did it, you know, and each time like, oh, this is tough. This is heavy. This, so like in a very physical sense, I love doing that type of work. And so it yeah. helps, it lends to the spiritual aspect of doing heavy lifting, lifting. hard work. Yeah. It's like you breathe in between, you take breaks, you listen to your body when it's, when it's feeling it and it's mm. aching. You know? So in the spiritual sense, for me, a lot of it is being really in tune with my feelings and what's happening 
there's been times, I think in the past two sessions where I've actually cried while teaching. One was when there was the shooting of the young lady. Her name is escaping me right now. She was playing with her nephew, a video game, and the the cop came in, shot her. It had just happened. And then we had class. Wow. And I just, I let it go. I had to cry. I had to feel that. And then another time I was talking about experience with my grandmother and it just came out. So what I have done for myself is I've allowed myself to feel, you know, I don't become something different when I'm teaching. I'm still a human. This is still real things. These are still painful things. And I don't feel like I need to quote unquote, get myself together. I don't feel like I need to be professional, That's right. all those type of things. Like I, I'm myself. Which are so, my, so coded in coded language. You know it. For, you right, know it. For you a know it. So, standard way of being, right. Oh my gosh. My classes, like I don't wear makeup. I cuss if I feel like cussing. Yeah. I crack joke, which is another part of that juxtaposition because like we're talking about this heavy thing, but then I'll, I'll bring in a joke somehow. Yeah. Not about the thing itself, but just how maybe I'm explaining it. So self-care for me going into it is, like I said, like that physical part and and then relating that to the spiritual, but then really just like in a practical part of it is I talk to my husband, you know, we talk, we talk, we talk Mm. and we go over things. I share things with him. And I also really, really, really believe in prayer I'm not that good at meditating. I want to get good at meditating. But meditating has been saving my life during this pandemic. Can you teach say. me? Like, well, you I know just... what? I want to say a shout out to Justin Michael Williams, the author of the book, Stay Woke. And I love the um, tagline. So this is the book. Just shout out to Justin Michael Williams. <laughs> because the tagline is a meditation guide for the rest of us. Good. Listen. Yes. And one of the things, the reason I'm shouting out this book, and I talked to him, I've interviewed him for the podcast. One of the things that he gave me permission to do was to keep my meditation super, super short. Mm, Okay. So yeah. Okay. I'll run through that. Two minutes every day, just sitting with myself, has been revolutionary. Okay. So maybe I don't understand meditation because I don't. (laughs) I will sit. Sister girl will sit with self. I will talk to self. I will reflect with self. I'm extremely introspective. I will. I guess I think of meditation like, you know, close my eyes and just like... No, you know, he guided me. I can't wait to share this conversation. He guided me through a process that's in the book of coming up with my mantra word and that I just repeat that word for like 15 minutes. And even that's a lot. 15 minutes that you can do five minutes, 10 minutes, like... Okay. Well, now that that's clear, now that we've solved that issue, um, you know, another thing I do self-care for me is I really enjoy dancing and singing. So I know you do. Yes. I sing, I will belt out like in my body. I can sometimes just feel the goosebumps, you know, coming out. So singing, dancing, exercise, reading, prayer and enjoying my family also enjoying my husband on in multiple ways so that that's, that's a form of self-care too. I love you so much <laughs> and I'm so happy I got to meet your husband and I met him and I went to shake his hand he's like no we're not doing that we're doing hugs is what we're doing and I told him I'm saying Chris you should have asked for consent no no I'm so happy because because my husband would have done the exact same thing Okay. And good. when okay. I met him, I was like, oh, he just, they just remind me of me and, and Sam, my husband. Oh, is, love it. I love it. You know, we are these very public black women doing this big work 
in a very confrontational way and they are our behind the scenes um, support. And without him, I mean, there's... No. <laughs> my husband right? is so... Like, he's not right. like a, oh, I want to be in the spotlight. Like, right. he's... No, my husband doesn't like being in the spotlight <laughs> at all, no. But back in the day when I was a makeup artist, yeah. my husband would go with me and clean my brushes. And he would carry my makeup and it would give me extra tips because the bride's moms thought it was the cutest thing oh. that my Navy guy was here cleaning brushes. Yeah. But he's always been in that support role. He's always been just really comfortable with who he is yeah, and just really wanting to see me shine. And that's just such a beautiful thing to find. It is so beautiful. I'm so glad I met him. And yeah, I just <laughs> love you all. Monique, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I mean, I literally, there's like five more questions I want to ask you, but we oh have goodness. to wrap it up because what, are we, at the time? we are okay. like so past okay. the time. Okay, ask me one more. I, want, I feel like I need one more. I feel like I need okay. a half of one. Maybe Okay, okay, one. okay. So we have a lot in common, even though we, we actually have very different personalities. I think you're very extroverted, right? Extremely Very, extroverted. very extroverted. I'm very, very introverted. But we have a lot in common, our spirituality, our calling to this work, our relationships with our husbands. The other thing that we have in common is that we're both mothers. Both have a girl and a boy. I know. We are the same person, basically. <laughs> Different ages. Mine are 10 and 5. Yours are a little bit older. How old yeah. are Yeah. Six and nine. Six and nine. Oh, so not too far I tell off, you, actually. we are the same. We yeah, are the same. We are the same. I got to meet them too. They are adorable. Um, <laughs> but I know that a huge driver for me in how I show up in the world anyway, but also especially how I show up in this work. You know, they are in Mean White Supremacy and the dedication in the front. You know, I dedicate this work to my children and my husband. Like, I do this work for them. I want them to have a better world. Mm -hmm. I never want, you talked about being bullied, right? On the school bus every day. Mm -hmm. You never want Mm -hmm. your daughter to ever experience that. And you wanted to have the tools and the language and the self-permission to be able to say, hey, you don't get to dehumanize me, right? Mm -hmm. So as you've been navigating this journey in becoming an anti-racism educator, becoming one who's very, very good at it and giving yourself and your children permission to show up in your full humanity. What changes have you seen in your children throughout this process? I just watched an uh, IG stories where you were showing that you asked your daughter, what to say if somebody calls you ugly? And she said, you don't get to call me that. I'm black girl magic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because two years prior, she had a little white girl call her ugly. And Mm -hmm. we did the same thing. Like I told her, We had a little video of her doing it, like, but you know what? I'm beautiful, Black Girl Magic. And I want my kids to be confident in who they are. I think a lot of parents want that for their children. But the change that I have seen more so in my son, I really feel like he's going to be a Black Panther of some sort, maybe. (laughs) I might really get the movement. I don't know. Like, he... He is very, very much like aware of racism. And And he's the the elder one, right? He's the elder. I was nervous that it would somehow rob their joy. Because you know racism tries to just to rob us of our joy, our humanity. 
And they're still very much happy-go-lucky kids, very wonderful, but they are deep thinkers. My daughter will be like, mommy, I got a deep question. You know, they're deep thinkers and they're deep feelers. And we allow, we facilitate, especially now in COVID, but any other time, like what's the highlight of your day? What was yeah. what was the low point, high point? Mm-hmm. So we we really encourage that. And I see the difference is that my son feels more comfortable. Whereas talking about race, where a lot of times black folks talk, like try to be palatable for white folks, you know, don't make up, you know, too much noise, all that. It felt taboo to even just acknowledge race or call someone white or whatever. Like even that felt taboo. And so my son, he's- Especially coming from the environment that you were in, right? The context of being in these white spaces. Exactly. Right, exactly. You don't say that. Like behind the scenes, you can say it, but not to them, not to their face. So now he's just more comfortable talking about race. And every now and then, just last night, I asked my kids, I said, what is racism? And my daughter, she kind of fumbled around and my son was like, can I tell her? And he, he was like, it's attitudes and beliefs against black people, brown people that are reinforced by systems of power. I'm like, what are systems of power? Yeah. And he's like, education systems, the police system, like all, you know, and, and so he said it in his words. Yeah. And he's trying to yeah. I said, okay, now break it down even more so your sister can understand. And so I want them to feel empowered with education and knowledge but I also want them to feel good in just who they are and their Blackness. So we'll talk about, you know, Black history and not just the, the horrible things that were done to us, but just us being us without yeah. the white gaze. And, you know, I've just seen them be more comfortable. My daughter is very confident and... She is. <laughs> I met her like and me. I was like, wow, she is a little Monique. Is, She's <laughs> she is. so much like me. She's like the me now. As yes. a young child, I wasn't that confident. Mm. She's more like me as who I am now. And at first they were confused when I would talk about white supremacy and white people. And they were confused that I still had white friends. They were like, but what about so-and-so? Are they racist too? Right. And I'm like, yeah. Yes. And like, How are you friend? <laughs> like they were really right. confused. Right. That. And I, I let them know it's, they have to be committed to anti-racism for us to be in friendship. There's no way around it. Like yeah. there's, there's no way. So the kids have changed in that way. And when I think about the work that I do and the changes that I see, cause I forgot to answer that part of the question, the changes I see for white folks is they show up and learn how to cause l- less harm. Mm. And it directly impacts the relationships that they have in their life with Black folks and people of color, but it also affects their interactions with people out in the environment, out in their communities, out in systems that they engage in. Like I teach a framework called Inside Out where we talk about the different ways to do the work Mm. and what that work looks like. And I get to see in real time this awareness of, wow, there's work for me to do, but I actually know how to do it versus oh my gosh, things are so hard. This is impossible. I don't know what to do. I'll do nothing. Right. right you know, like right, there's this right. sense of empowerment of, wow, yes. I have a voice and I also have an opportunity to do something different than my ancestors right. and to disrupt this legacy of whiteness. And so I think about my children growing up in a world where you have white folks who are coming into this work and teaching their children, hopefully, it feels like there's a world perhaps possible that could be a little less violent yeah. to us as Black folks, people of color. 
Right. And this is the last thing I will say before my final question. But one of the okay. questions that I do get asked a lot by white parents is, you know, what do you think, Leila, is the age that I should start talking to my children about racism? You've just talked about your son who's nine years old, right? Who has the ability to explain exactly what racism is, how it shows up, and you've empowered him to be able to explain that to his six-year-old sister in a way that she would be able to understand it. There is no age too young to begin having these conversations. That's what I say, that there's no age I totally young, agree. And that totally agree. it's not just a one-off big talk like the sex talk. It is a constant conversation where you are teaching them critical thinking skills. You're teaching them to be able to really notice what's going on in the world, not what's being presented to them, yep. but what's you know, being said that's not being said directly, yep. right? And empowering them to understand who they are, how people may be perceiving them, and what the truth is about who they are. Absolutely. And it starts young. I mean, children as young as three months begin to recognize differences in, in right. racial differences. Right. And I talk about that. I have a course for kids on, or parents who teach their kids how to talk about race. And, you know, a lot of times there's like this idea of wanting to preserve white innocence and like they're young, they're innocence, but there's, there's no innocence in being a white person in the white supremacist society. And my child as young as three, we're talking about how to interact with police and how to get, you know, how to be safe around. Right, because you feel safe around. So Audre Lorde is someone who, you know, I talk about a lot and her book, she calls it a biomythography. It's like her biography, but she called it a biomythography and it's called Zami, a new spelling of my name. And she talks about being on the bus with her mom and she's wearing this beautiful kind of winter coat and the white woman sitting next to her is kind of like, licking herself off as if something dirty is there or she's sort of moving to the side as if there's something dirty there and Audrey doesn't understand what's going on. So she also thinks there's something dirty there. So she starts shuffling as well and not understanding it's you she's moving away from. That it does happen to oh, yeah. very, very small black children. Absolutely. So when we talk about preserving innocence, what about black children's innocence? What about people of color's innocence? What about indigenous children's innocence? If we're going to talk about innocence, let's talk about everyone's innocence. Exactly. And how it's stripped from even infancy, like Mm -hmm. in in the womb. Mm -hmm. And my Mm -hmm. children have experienced racism at school. We've had to go to the school and address it. And my son is now aware, and my children, when they're watching TV, they're able to see like, why are all the white people in the good roles here? Or why are the black people the bad people? They're able to see and pick up on those type of things. And my daughter was like, oh, mommy, we, there's a Dr. Seuss book here. I don't want that book. Like, you know, yes. we talk about how Dr. <laughs> Seuss is racist. Right. You know, so like they're learning and they're applying it in their way of processing at their young age. So I'm grateful for that, which is really inspiring for me to keep doing my work because I'm yeah. equipping my children. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Monique. This lends so beautifully to our final question that I ask every guest. But before I ask you that question, where can people find you and follow you? And what work do you have available, especially for people with white privilege, where they can engage and come and learn from you? Yes. So I'm on the gram. and As we at, are. Yes. The gram. <laughs> it's at Mo Motivate. My family teases me. They're like, Mo Motivate, Mo Motivate. But yeah, motivate you to get your life. So it's, <laughs> it's M-O-E Motivate and not Motivates. And that's where I'm at. And then on my website, MoniqueNelton.com. Work, the Unity Over Comfort 
program goes in rounds. So depending on when this comes out, the next round may be open for enrollment. I don't, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But the other things like my shop, I have, they're called shine classes. Everything's somehow shine. And they're like one-off classes where you can learn about different topics. And those are in my shop. You can buy those anytime. The shine box, you can enroll in that anytime. It's a self-paced course. You can enroll in that anytime. And the kids course, that's also in rounds. That's done in rounds. So at, depending on where you're at and the time, there's something you can be getting involved in right now. And people can come hire you to come talk. Yes. Oh, yes. what am I thinking? Yes, I do. Yes, I've worked with organizations. Uh-huh. Um, speak. I love speaking. I do love mm-hmm. speaking. I think my favorite, though, is teaching, you know, because yeah. it's definitely a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, this conversation has filled me up so much. I've learned a lot about you, your journey, what motivates you, and also. I feel even more committed to my own self-healing and showing up in my full humanity just from hearing about how you have navigated that and the way that you are committed. So thank you for that gift for me. I know that there are many Black women who listen to this podcast and who are who have been screaming, yes! Yay. <laughs> I love your podcast. I say that when I'm listening to it. I'm like, I love It's so good. It's just like an apple pie. It's My just guests so are amazing. That's why. They are. <laughs> Ugh, I love um, your podcast. So thank you very much. And thank you also for the important work that you do in helping to create a better world. I honor you mm-hmm. and I acknowledge you and I'm so grateful for you. Ugh, don't make me cry. I wore mascara for the first time in six weeks. <laughs> Goodness. Oh, you're amazing. amazing. Um, I love you. Monique, you are a living ancestor to me. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? I love that question. To me, to be a good ancestor is to acknowledge that my life does not exist in a vacuum, that there have been decisions made before I was even here that impact the way that I am able to live and move in this world and in this space, and that there are decisions that I will make. And there will be actions that I will take that will affect the people who come before me. And so to be a good ancestor is to acknowledge that I am not just for myself, but that how I live my life affects other people and that there is an intentionality that needs to exist within how I move and operate in this world to be mindful of how my decisions will impact future generations and how my sacrifices, how my compromises can materialize into the future realities that people are going to be navigating. Mm. So to be a good ancestor is to really be committed to the longevity of this, the longevity of that humanity and that unity that we seek to see, which means that I'll make decisions in the moment that don't always feel good, that don't make me want to just jump up for joy because it's just so warm and fuzzy, but that they're for my good and they are for the good of future generations. And I feel like I want to be able to look back on my life and say that I did everything that I could with everything that I had. That's what's so important to me. I think that's one of my favorite answers to this question so far. Thank you so much. I will always remember my life does not exist in a vacuum. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much. Tambourine, yes. tambourine. Where is the tambourine? Ah, stressful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for me. having me. This was amazing. Thank you, Layla. Thank you. Take care. This is Layla Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, 
patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.